we now have uh, a better, I think it's fair to say, uh, a greater degree of acceptance across Canada of the practice of medical assistance in dying. Today on the program, medical assistance in dying, or MAID. Some call it merciful and individual choice. Others call it suicide and killing. I thought we were a society of inclusion, not exclusion. Euthanasia is exclusion. It is exclusion from the living process. MAID became legal in Canada in 2016. But last year, the Quebec Superior Court ruled that the requirement that a person's natural death must be foreseeable to access MAID is too restrictive. The federal government has asked the public to weigh in on MAID and what safeguards should be in place as they explore expanding the definition to include mature minors, the mentally ill, and advanced requests to die before death is naturally foreseeable. We'll speak with advocates and experts on both sides and care homes caught in conflicting values. Plus, what happens when our elders are abused by their caretakers and their communities, even family members? Is prescription love and respect in short supply? Watch and see what you think. We've got a lot to cover on today's issue and uh, lots of different voices, but first to help us make sense of this is medical ethicist Carrie Bowman. Professor Bowman is at University of Toronto. You have overseen hundreds of cases mm -hmm. of end of life, mm -hmm. medical assistance in dying. Mm -hmm. um, you're not opposed to the current legislation, mm -hmm. but you're worried about the expansion of the law. Why? Yeah. You know, I've been very divided on this myself, and it's been a struggle. Um, I, I've seen, you know, I've worked with people, dying patients, as you said in your intro, you know, hundreds of times. So I've been, I've, you know, I've struggled with this. And I am supportive, because what has been clear to me is the public categorically has wanted something done about this. And I watched as the medical establishment, the medical community, really held off for a long time. And I really felt that we had to support public voices. But as we now look at the point we're at with expanding the legislation, I worry. Uh, I worry about that expansion. You actually have called it a circus of inclusion. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. we've got uh, mental health now, mature minors, and advanced requests. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the worry of advanced requests. Well, advanced requests, you know, there are many Canadians out there that were supportive of legislative changes, and what they really thought they were getting was they wanted to say, I don't want to end up muddled and confused in a long-term care facility. I don't want to end up like my mother, my sister, my neighbor. Or I don't want to end up in pain. Yeah, or, or that. But when it comes to advanced directives, you know, a lot of that, you know, people are actually referring to the potential for... Uh, dementia. So that's one of the things. And pain is included in this. So if, so, you, if you want an advanced on dementia, mm -hmm. you do it now while you're of sane mind. Mm -hmm. um, who pulls out your file and decides now you're demented enough? That's the problem. Now let's be clear. Right now this is not legally possible. So if I were to say the day I can't recognize my children, I would no, no longer want to be living. And people do say things like that all the time. Um, okay, so if that was the nature of the advanced directives, I would write that in a state of capacity. But I'm a child and I still want to, I still recognize you and I want <laughs> you alive, but that's... You're going to. Oh, I know. I know. Okay. So is this what that's this is? Yeah, this that's what that would be about. And then in theory, you know, just imagine, let that play out for a couple of years, and then children come to visit, don't know who you are, don't know who you are. Would we really then expect medical staff to take that person and and you know, 
you know, pass them through medical assistance kill and dying. Them. Yeah, kill them. Yeah. So that is what, you know, that is part of it. With the cancers, I mean, there's a lot of fear that people will lose capacity as, as their, you know, pain increases and things like that. So that's a lot of the thrust for advanced, uh, you know, advanced directives is of that nature. And that's one of the big ones we're looking at. But with the questionnaire that's coming out now, we've got some categories going on. And one of the biggest is, is you know, advanced directives is a really, really big one. Uh, so is mature minors. Depending on what province you're in, but in the province of Ontario, there actually isn't a, an age of healthcare consent. So a 17-year-old could never under any circumstances have medical assistance in dying, whereas an 18-year-old could. And so what the legislative changes could be is instead of looking at their date of birth, we would actually look at their capacity, as we do with other medical treatments. So that, that's a big one. Okay, so we um, got talking because uh, there has been a survey out until mm -hmm. uh, January, Canadians could check it off. Um, we're disappointed that the health minister who's launched that survey, the justice minister, all have refused uh, to comment on the show. They've, uh, perhaps mm -hmm. they're too busy. But this is a massive discussion Canada's having, and are we doing it slow enough, or is the yeah. click, click, click on the survey enough? Uh, you know, I find the timelines very tight, and I've also heard that the, the, the amount of people trying to enter data on, this, on the survey is really significant. Hey, uh, it's flooding it. I'm not saying it's crashing. I don't know that, but I know they're getting massive amounts of data, which tells me uh, that, you know, people really, really want to be heard. I find the timeline extremely tight for a democratic process. Because, you know, for the many Canadians that said, you know, my fear with this is that when the legislation goes through, as it did four years ago, that we, we've created this tent of inclusion. But, you know, eventually this small tent will become a circus tent. That's the concern. Because if we now move to you don't have to particularly be dying of anything specific, because that's one of the biggest elements that's before the court, will soon be before the courts, uh, age of consent, and then mental health as a primary diagnosis, that's also under consideration. So this is tough. And I, as I said, I'm very divided on this. But here's my, my greatest fear is that what this does to society without us even being fully conscious of it, that the day could come where we see a person with whatever challenges they may have, whether they're wheelchair bound or whatever issues they have, and we will look at that person and think, why would they do that to other people? as opposed to supporting them as another human being. And I fear that our very views of human frailty and illness will shift. And, and I don't think we're fully conscious of that. And the argument uh, is, but this is just me. I want to choose this for my life. I mm -hmm. don't want my fragility to be extended. Mm -hmm. And as an ethicist, uh, I think what you're challenging me with is, you actually ripple out to all of society because then people start thinking they're not worth it, they're not worth it. Yeah, and that is what happens. But I, I still go back to my original point that watching patients over many, many decades and hearing so many voices about how Canadians really felt they wanted to be in control at the end of life, um, that is where I was supportive. Um, you know, for the inclusion of this legislation. The broadening of it, so the question before the courts is what kind of safeguards are we gonna have? So, you know, are we gonna have mandatory psychiatric assessments? Are we gonna have, what are we going to have? And we may have none of those things, we don't know. 
Okay, so at the very least, talk to your member of parliament. <laughs> good idea. Very good idea. Because this is happening very quickly. Yeah, let's have, as Canadians, we should slow it down and make sure this is a very thorough ethical yeah. search. Okay, Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist from the University of Toronto, clinical uh, ethicist in hospitals, helping on the issues of dying. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Lorna. Thank you. Just how far the government will go to expand euthanasia laws is not yet known. Filmmaker Kevin Dunn has been following the story. He's traveled Europe, North America and Australia to see how these laws affect societies. Kevin, what is the most common misconception about medical assistance in dying? A lot of people think that these laws only have to do with people at the very, very end of their life. When, when, when pain is so excruciating that, that you just feel like you need a way out. And what we found through, these are in our studies, these are studies all across the world, is that pain, actual physical, can't bear any more pain is way down on the list. And the number one reasons why people ask for this are, are fear of losing my autonomy, fear of future pain, fear of becoming a burden. Here we have fear, 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 right, right, right at the head of this. And, and that, is the most, that is the most common misconception. People think this is ex about pain when really it is about our fear of the future. So the stats of people who are using it, it is, you feel, your stats in, in the film work you've done, it shows it's fear, but there is the, the concern that um, if it is fear-based, if it's choice-based, let's say it's autonomy-based, yeah. That there will be a slippery slope. Yeah. Is there any truth to that argument? Those that are in favor of euthanasia say there's no slippery slope. What we say is there is incremental expansions of the law, and we incremental expansions of the law, and we even see that in Canada right now, where we're being there's a survey going on saying should we expand this to minors? Should we expand this to people with advanced requests? Should we expand this to people with mental illness? And this, these are the places. Those are, things are the three big issues before Canada right yeah. now. Okay, yeah. and, and thankfully there is a government survey only though until the 27th right. of January for the public to fill out and then it will be carefully debated. We hope. Uh, we hope <laughs> with the health minister. Um, let's just talk about um, the frontiers that are looked at. Those are the three in Canada. What is the completed life pill legislation that's in the Netherlands? Yeah, the completed so this, life pill. In, in the Netherlands they're actually debating a law that would have people who are physically healthy ask for euthanasia if they felt their life was complete, if they felt that they, you know, life was just over. They didn't want to deal with old people stuff, if you will, um, that their life had no meaning anymore. Outside of the euthanasia law, they want a law that basically would allow for suicide on demand. This is actually being debated in the Netherlands right now. And it's something we have to be very concerned about because these are our Western brothers and sisters. The completed life pill legislation. Okay. Uh, research, filmmaking, you do talks. Um, around the world, We've yeah. got, uh, uh, your website is fatalflawsfilm.com. Yeah, that's the film. Okay, what are we missing about the euthanasia debate? Because there's a lot of people who say, just give me my choice. You, as a religious person, Lorna, you want it this way. What are we missing? We're missing the fact that, that this isn't about necessarily autonomy and all these other things. It's about giving doctors the right in law to end the life of another individual. Most doctors don't want to have anything to do with this, but when we legislate it, as we have here in Canada, it then implies, it then implies that somebody else has to be involved in your death. The doctor, the nurse, the, uh, the, prescri the people who are involved in prescriptions. It is a societal thing. And when 
majority of people don't want to have anything to do with this, we've got a real concern on our hands. And we do have uh, doctors of all stripes, faith-based and non-faith-based, asking for conscience rights, that Absolutely. they should be able to protect their conscience, not just doctors, all medical workers. Kevin Dunn, filmmaker of Fatal Flaws, thank you. And you can find out more about that film at fatalflawsfilm.com. To the West now, and two different treatments on medical assistance in dying. In Winkler, Manitoba, Salem Home has been on the cutting edge of conscience rights on MAID. At Salem Home, 90% of the funding comes from government, and 93% of the 146 patients at Salem have dementia. And medical assistance in dying is not allowed on site. In Delta Hospice in British Columbia, that 10-bed hospice has 48% of its funding from government and the rest raised charitably by a membership that voted against MAID and now is at risk of losing their government funding. Angelina Ireland is the president of Delta Hospital and Sherry Jansen is the CEO of Salem Home in Winkler, Manitoba. You're joining us both. Angelina, let's start with you. Uh, what does it mean um, that Delta, I mean, you're a hospice, people go there to die. Why are you refusing medical assistance in dying as part of your treatment there? Well, we are a hospice and palliative care facility. And within the philosophy of hospice and palliative care, we do not hasten death. We provide pain management. We provide symptom management that allows our patients to uh, peacefully die um, from natural causes. So we do not want to implement euthanasia because it's against our philosophy of hospice and palliative care. And your charitable members that pay over half the budget of the hospice are saying, stick to it. We do not want this here. So are their conscience rights are, are now being uh, really trampled by, by the government of British Columbia in threatening to remove the 48% of government funding, right? We're a private organization. We are under the Societies Act of British Columbia. We have bylaws and we have a constitution. And our constitution does not allow us to implement euthanasia. Okay. Okay, I want to hang on there and now introduce Sherry. Um, uh, Sherry, you are coming to us. Sherry Jensen is the CEO of Salem Home Long Term term care facility there in Winkler, Manitoba, where also the shareholders, the, the community, your board, your members oppose medical assistance in dying. But you've had very different outcomes. You haven't been bullied by the government to lose your funding. You're allowed to operate under conscience rights. Why? Part of it is the legislation that was put into place uh, in, initially. And we have been very, very fortunate in the last two ministers of health, both were our believers. And so as all of this was being crafted, uh, they allowed for conscientious objectors to take a stand against having made, um, either performing made or having it done in their organizations. And what's so interesting to me is 
you can look like uh, just two uh, small groups of, uh, of people running the, the place, but it's actually communities. Like, like people are voting by the hundreds. This is the ethic we want in our hospital or in our, in our hospice. Sherry, what's your advice for people who have a community ethic or, and they're trying to protect their freedom of religion and freedom of conscience on this issue of medical assistance in dying? Our original policy did not allow for an initial assessment for made to happen in our building. And we've been told we must follow legislation. Uh, it was a real struggle for the board. I have to tell you that this was not something that they have determined lightly. What they decided to do was instead of focusing on the made process, if that's what we have to do, we need to make sure that the residents that live in our facility find meaning and purpose every day because they won't ask for made if their lives are filled with meaning. In Delta, um, is, is there any recourse or it, it, does it look like uh, you are, I know now you're referring people to the hospital for medical assistance in dying. Will, do you think that will still be able to be the, the line you are able to navigate for freedom of conscience there at Delta Hospice? Well, we have proposed to the government that they, in fact, do cut half of our funding. We would like them to look at us um, as instead of funding 100% of our beds, only funding 50% of our beds. And within a health communique that we were given um, from the Ministry of Health, there is an option there. If that contracted provider can fund 50% or more of their beds, there's an option for them to opt out of providing MAID. These are very difficult issues, but it's fascinating to hear how communities are rallying to say, this is our, our charitable dollar partnering with government dollar. Can we find a way forward on conscience rights on medical assistance in dying? Angelina Ireland from Delta Hospice and Sherry Jansen from Salem Home, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Now to Alberta, a very personal look on medical assistance in dying. Like Canadian society, Mark Davis Pickup's views on assisted dying have evolved over time. At the two to three year point, my grief was so deep, my heartache was so sharp, that my thinking became clouded. And if there had been a, a Jack Kevorkian back in the mid-1980s, I can see that I might have opted for that option. I'm so glad today that it did not happen because I never would have known my grandchildren. If I, with multiple sclerosis, advanced multiple sclerosis, ask for suicide, I will get it. If my wife, who does not have it, asks for suicide, she will get suicide prevention counseling. That's how far we've gone. That's a new version of our Canadian values. Forty years ago, euthanasia was unthinkable. That coarsening of the public mindset began little bit by little bit. It began with the unborn. And then we gradually started getting it further and further along. And then came the death with dignity crowd that talked about 
uncontrolled and uncontrollable pain, and that was only merciful. The public began to say, well, I can see that, despite the fact that we can control all pain. Now they're talking about suffering, but not suffering just physical. It is suffering as the individual sees it. But then we have to ask, what are the circumstances of the individual? There was a time not so long ago when we said, well, we reach out and we help that person. I thought we were a society of inclusion, not exclusion. Euthanasia is exclusion. It is exclusion from the living process. Those people who desire to die need community. They don't need death, they need love. We are interdependent society. Words like friend, neighbor, community, nation, all attest to the fact that we are interdependent. And when someone does not feel part of community, we don't kill them, we find ways to include them. The Advocacy Centre for the Elderly gets called about trespass matters like this at least once a week. In my opinion, and I think in this House opinion, banning family members for raising concerns about living conditions of seniors is wrong. So my question for this government, will they launch? a full investigation into retirement homes using trespassing laws in these ways to make sure that family members can access their loved ones when they want to see them. Can complaining about the treatment of your loved one in a nursing home get you banned from visiting them? Well, here's one daughter's story. The last six months have been so difficult. My dad literally would not get fed. He called me and said, Lynn, I haven't eaten, so can you come and feed me? Sorry. And I just think, how can this possibly happen? Like, it is so inhumane. So you have two organizations that can't get their act together, and it's the elderly that are suffering. And I have so many people that have so many complaints about this home and no one seems to be doing anything about it. So then I wrote to the head of the United Church um, because they leased this building for $1. He took, uh, Ken, beautiful man, um, he took a lot of reports from people. He was absolutely appalled and disgusted, and, but he was told to stand down and that his hands were tied. But he actually encouraged me to go to the media because of everything that he heard. And then I called the local church and I wrote them and he said the same, that um, he wasn't involved in it. But their whole website, everything is that it's, you know, affiliated with the church and I think most of the board goes to this church. So I'm in ministry, so that broke my heart because I just felt, you know, how is it that people can just, that's the opposite of who Christ is, right? How do we just turn a blind eye and, and not feed people? When I walked in, this woman started crying to me and she said that she was sorry, that she doesn't want to kicked out, and she feels badly that she can't feed my dad. And I said, it's okay. Well, I did ask her, are you prepared to go on record with that? And she said no, because she was too afraid, and she has nowhere to go, and she has no family. So these are the most vulnerable people, and, you know, and they're elderly. And within five minutes, I had a phone call from a board member, and he said that I am no longer allowed to be on the premises, and if I am, I will be charged with trespassing. 
and that they're getting their lawyers and that I would have to make other arrangements um, to see my dad. So I had, and thank God for helping hands. So I just walked out. I was just absolutely in tears. I was devastated and um, a couple of the helping hands staff just hugged me and I said, please just take care of my dad until I can figure it out. And they hugged me and they said, we will, Lynn. And then I am very thankful to Helping Hands, to be honest. They offered to move my dad and relocate him into a respite bed for three months. But my dad is so sad um, because this is his home. Those were his friends. He's lived there for nine years. It's family to him, right? And he doesn't understand. So my dad's in another home until we figure it out. Context Fatan Al-Faraj found out that many seniors feel too ashamed to report abuse. Um, elderly people may, or the older adult, may find shame in reporting it, or because they rely on a family member who is the usual perpetrator of the abuse, um, they then are reluctant to report, A, they don't want to um, see a family member maybe criminally prosecuted, but also who else do they rely on for assistance? And so um, it's a difficult situation, so also difficult to understand the prevalence of it. So in my practice, I see, for example, situations of fraud or um, abuse of powers of attorneys, and uh, we see all sorts of advantage taken of elderly persons whose capacity is at issue, um, or they're vulnerable or dependent, or they have a disability of sorts. Older persons who perhaps have barriers, like language barriers, uh, or who are dependent for physically, for uh, physical assistance, um, who don't have family in the same community or country, who don't have friends and resources, let's say, to assist with their daily tasks of life, and when they then become dependent on you know, the services of others who are more prone to being abused. Is there like a, a study or a number that shows how many cases of elder abuse have been filed? We know the numbers are much higher than the, the stats show, but the Ministry of, the, of Justice do, do hold some statistics. Um, just, it's far from accurate, I'd say. So how can we raise awareness? TV shows like this, the news, making people aware of what's going on in society and um, disseminating that knowledge. Educate the police and the public on uh, red flags of elder abuse, um, so social isolation. A note on our reporting here on medical assistance in dying, we did contact Justice Minister David Lametti as well as Health Minister Patty Hadju and the Minister of Disability Inclusion, Carla Quattro. Minister Lametti's office was the only office to get back to us saying he was not available. None of the others got back to us. So the government process on hearing your views will need that input on the website that they're asking for at the Justice Department. And uh, as we've covered this now in our 20th season of Context and seen the expanding use of medical assistance in dying, on a bad day I say, this is why God told us you shall not kill because we'll never figure it out right. But actually there's a much deeper reason and uh, we're gonna let Mark pick up a voice you heard early in the program, have the last word on why a Christian conviction 
declines medical assistance in dying. My Christian faith has at its very root the value of human life. For if, if that were not true, why would Christ have come and died for people like me? Because we are made in the image of God and we are worth loving, there is no such thing in the Christian view as a life unworthy to be lived. And I think that Christians, if we come together as followers of Christ and we offer a positive life-affirming solution to life's problems for those who want to, to end their lives, that becomes one of our greatest witnesses. It is the witness of love. That was our full show that's posted every Thursday on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the notification bell to get our weekly episodes and web exclusives.